Self-Help Satnav is brought to you by Open Forwards. Did you know that you can get free training to help you relax and feel more confident? Just head on over to www.openforwards.com. That's www.openforwards.com. Episode number 17 of Self-Help Satnav, the monthly podcast where we discuss relationships, mental health, work, parenting, well-being, and much, much more. I'm your host, Jim Lucas, founder, behavioral therapist, and online course creator. Kids hate sticking to the rules, and adults hate it when kids don't do as they're told. So how can parents and teachers help their kids to do the stuff that we know is good for them? In this episode, I am joined by a teacher with over 17 years experience and a passion for making education more meaningful. I'm also joined by her husband, an act therapist and a psychologist at Veterans Affairs in the USA. Together, they have written an incredible training resource for teachers called Empower Your Students, Tools to Inspire a Meaningful School Experience. They are Lauren Porosoff, and Jonathan Weinstein. Hi both, thanks for joining me. Hi. Hi, great to be here. So Lauren, I just wanted to ask you to begin with, what's an example of a self-help tool that you've put to use in your own life? Well, I've actually learned, learned a, little, a, little bit, a little bit about the acceptance and commitment therapy traditions. And one of the tools that I found most helpful in my life, both as a teacher and as a parent, it's kind of funny, but the, the singing as a way to unhook from some of the emotions, like the frustration and tedium of, of teaching. So uh, everything from when I have to grade a stack of papers, I might start singing about having to grade um, or if a student comes into the classroom without their materials, which can be kind of frustrating and annoying when I remind them every single day, I might kind of in my head start singing about, you know, where's your notebook? And then even teaching schools can be um, kind of political. And so I sometimes sing in my head or sometimes after school on the way to school um, about that too. And it really, it really, uh, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make those parts of the job more fun, but um, it can help me kind of cope with some of those emotions. And what about you, Jonathan? Do you do something similar or would you say that you kind of tend to go to something different? Um, I do something similar. Um... You know, if we can find, if I'm in therapy and I'm working with a patient, we can find a song that has some sort of resonance. We might change the words. I'll just give an example in my own experience for a time. I was attempting to do some research, which is really challenging to do in a world where you're seeing mostly patients and you don't have any time blocked for it. Um, 
And so we're not really set up for it. So the way I would try to kind of get around my own mental obstacles, I would sing this song based on uh, a single by Paramount, which is called um, uh, Ain't It Fun. But I would change the words for, you know, living in the real, real world to doing research in the real world. So I was like, ain't it fun, research in the real world, <laughs> which is kind of kind of silly, but I would try to you know, change some of the words and, 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 uh, you know, sort of make it silly. Yeah. And we're laughing at it, aren't we? So it's kind of, it's having an impact. Well, that's, that's just it. And I feel like it almost helps to not have a particularly good singing voice because when I start singing, where's your notebook, where's your notebook, where's your notebook? Like it sounds ridiculous. So I, I kind of laugh at myself and then I laugh sort of at the whole situation yeah you guys are much braver than me i clearly i have an invitation <laughs> to sing more often <laughs> i don't know if i'll be doing that today though <laughs> and so um you've written a book recently called empower your students tools to inspire a meaningful school experience can you tell me a bit about the the background of that and why you wanted to put that together um, yeah, so, um, so I, I, I have been teaching for, I just finished my 17th year, and it's always been really important to me that students can connect what they do in school to their own lives, to things that are meaningful for them, but I, I guess I've just always found no matter what I've tried, no matter how engaging or playful or meaningful I've tried to make assignments, that students they kind of see school as something done to them. So they show up for class, they take out their materials, they listen to the teacher, they do whatever they're supposed to do so that they can get the best grade or so that they can just sort of get through their day. Um, and I really wanted to think about ways to help them make school meaningful for themselves. And so when Jonathan, who practices ACT, taught me about how he was helping his patients think about their values and commit to their values and kind of let go of or, or deal with some of the difficult emotions that came along with, with their lives and with committing to their values, I thought, we really need to be using this in schools. Teachers need to learn how to do this. So, um, so we wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like therapy because we don't want teachers to be therapists. So we've really thought about ways to adapt some of the tools of ACT so that teachers can use them and so that they'll be appropriate and meaningful in school so that students can live by their values. And so is this kind of, uh, kind of where you start then in supporting teachers to help their students in this ACT consistent sort of psychological way? Is it, is it starting with values? Yeah, we, we um, and we know that in therapy that that's not generally the way that therapists start. I don't know, Jonathan, you can speak to that more. Uh, you know, there are different ways in and there's really no um, uh, defined way to start. Uh, most protocols you typically will start with what's not working, creative hopelessness, as a way toward getting towards the struggle and then 
connecting to values as the reinforcer and behavioral activation to move you in the direction of those values. Um, but with, with students, you're not necessarily starting uh, right away in that place of struggle. So it's even more important to get values on the table right. so that they have a sense of what, of what they're working for and they can connect the everyday routine and make it something that uh, is important to them. Yeah, so I guess that conversation that you're having with students is, is different to that therapy context in a way. Somebody's not coming exactly. to yeah, with a problem they want to work on, but you're just kind of, you're coming at a different angle that's about, about just kind of helping somebody. It's, how would you phrase it? Um, well, we, we, we chose the word empower pretty deliberately because it's really about giving the power back to the students um, to really take charge of their own education in, in the context of their own lives and what makes their lives meaningful. So that's really the goal. It's about helping them see that school is not just, you know, a bunch of teachers telling them stuff to do. It's about how they can, they can connect their experiences to what's meaningful. So for example, I had a student a couple of years ago um, who he, he really, he hated math. Um, I'm, I'm not a math teacher, I'm an English teacher, but he hated math and he hated writing and I am a writing teacher. But he loved baseball. And so we used to talk about how hard he would work to practice his batting stance and how he would just stand out there for hours just practicing his stance. And so we talked about sort of the, why that was important to him. And he wanted to do some things with sports, but it turned out that that level of persistence was also meaningful to him, that it made him feel satisfied, even if it was painful in the moment. So we sort of started to have these conversations about, well, how is writing like practicing your batting stance? And how is writing an opportunity for you to practice the kind of persistence that you need on the field? So on a, on a more of a meta level, what we're trying to do is to abstract the qualities of action inherent in valued living. So sort of like the, the process of living your values and behaving in a direction toward them and the vitality and energy behind that and trying to locate those those properties and bring them with you when you're trying something that is important yeah yes. so i guess you're referring to the persistence there that lauren was just talking about mm-hmm. yeah the persistence and that sort of single-minded focus that she's describing in that example and it, it really could be whatever it is that that is important to the student. So some are motivated by opportunities to use their creativity. Some of them want to practice becoming more compassionate or kinder or developing relationships. And so helping them kind of transform what school means so that they can see the opportunities to practice the behaviors that they care about. And that word empower just kind of, I hadn't really clicked before, but it seems like it's quite an attractive word for that school context. Like it's got the word power in it. And for a kid in a, an environment where they feel like they've got to follow a lot of rules, that, that's probably quite attractive. Exactly. That's really the idea. And um, 
the word empower, I mean, we're, we're definitely not the first people um, writing about education to use the word, but what I find in, if you like Google empower students and you start reading other stuff about it, it really still is about getting the students to feel powerful while using some of the tools that teachers are saying are important for them to use. And our goal isn't really so much about students feeling powerful, although they sometimes do. It's really more about them discovering that it's up to them to decide what school means, that it's even if they can't control um, you know, who their teachers are or what classes they take or what, what their peers do, they can control how they approach their education. Yeah. Yeah. And so this book is aimed, is aimed mainly at teachers who want to help their students in this way. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And so how does this then, do you kind of have a way of like um, sort of transferring this to the sort of family context at home kind of your role as a parent um is, is there some way that you kind of try to, to use that in in that role um we actually there's there's a chapter that we wrote about parents and it's funny because we we didn't originally have that chapter in in the book and our editor kind of convinced us to write it and we're really glad we did especially as parents who have kids who are in school um so we, we talk about how teachers can frame all their communications with parents in terms of student values. So if I give a writing assignment and I'm sending an email to parents, letting them know that I recently graded it, I might ask them, you know, here's some things you can talk about with your kid. You can ask them, you know, why was it important to you to write about this particular topic right now? And what do you think you want to study next? And tell me about your writing process and what was hard and what worked for you and what might you want to try differently next time. And that way, instead of, you know, getting an assignment back can be a pretty fraught experience for kids when they get a grade that they're not so happy with and then they have to show it to their parents. But this way, instead of only focusing on grades, not that grades are unimportant, but it doesn't have to be the only topic of conversation between parents and kids. It can be also about the values that motivated them to write the paper and to, to do the revision. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's, that's one way that we bring the work to parents. I think what I heard you say there, Lauren, was Again, re-emphasizing what's important to the person, what are their values in it. And then another thing I think you were touching on was talking about the experience of doing it, like bring that alive in a conversation. Exactly. Right. And, and in our experience, when parents uh, are initiating a conversation, say outside of a routine conference, they're often pursuing an agenda based on their child's happiness um, or their child's achievement. Um, and so, you know, we have ways of talking to parents about both of those issues while trying to sort of orient them in a direction that empowers their child in the, in the classroom and in their studies. And as parents ourselves, I mean, there's, there's very little that's, <laughs> that's more aversive than when our children are upset. Yeah. And so we understand why parents, you know, call 
teachers when, when their kids are unhappy. It's just that trying to chase happiness all the time doesn't necessarily lead students to live the kinds of lives at school that are going to be meaningful. They might actually avoid challenges because they become unhappy when something's too hard. They might, if they're, you know, different levels, for example, of, of classes, they might drop down to a lower level because they just, they feel so unhappy because of how hard the work is. And so, so we really more advocate shifting the conversation to help the kid think about, um, you know, what, what is it that matters to you? And parents and teachers can really partner together around that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here kind of noticing my role as a parent as well. I've got two children and I'm just thinking about the way that I kind of talk to them that I might be led probably too often about my own expectations and my own rules and and not tuning in enough to kind of what's what's kind of, and getting them to talk about what's most meaningful to them. I can I can see how that'd be much more kind of useful. And often um, when you can find that, what's meaningful to them, helping them to notice the difference between when they're doing something that's maybe at school meaningful to you versus what they really care about. um, So they can experience the qualitative difference in the action itself. So that'd be a conversation you'd have with with one of your children, would it, Jonathan? (laughs) Um, well, as I tug on my shirt, uh, <laughs> it's often hardest with one's own ch- ch- children, but sure, um, you know, we, we, we certainly try to have uh, those conversations in lots of different ways and um, try to pay attention to those times when we really see our, our child and, our, you know, our kids getting engaged in something for its own sake. It's really funny because our, our daughter is 10 and she's totally on to us. So anytime yeah. we start having conversations about school, she'll say, mom, I don't value it. <laughs> <laughs> this is not serving my values to do my math homework. So, but I value the iPad. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I like clever, eh? Yeah. She's, she's pretty clever. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but what, just that last bit, what you were saying there about that distinction between, you know, some, I like the bit about expressing an awareness that actually a lot of what you do might just be that you're, you're trying to keep me happy as your dad or as your mum. And I want to notice, help you notice if you're doing that and notice when you might be making decisions for yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And as she's been, as she gets older, that's something that more and more we've been looking at. So, because the work gets harder um, and I don't want her to do it just because she thinks it's going to make me happy. It's not about my happiness. It's about her pursuing a meaningful life. So she loves nature and she loves science and engineering. And if she's going to pursue any of those in a serious way, um, she's going to need that math. (laughs) So we, we try to think about ways that learning math will contribute to that kind of, to that kind of work. Hmm. And it doesn't make the math homework more fun. Um, but it, but it does sort of connect it to a source of, of meaning in her life. 
makes navigating the things that you have resistance to uh, a bit easier to do? I would say there's still plenty of struggle. Uh, maybe it's easier for us to accept her struggle <laughs> and, and, and maybe that makes it easier for her. Um, I, I would say it's still, we're very much, you know, figuring things out in terms of, um, you know, how, how much effort and, and work she's going to put into things when she's really struggling and, um, and how we're going to, you know, sort of navigate around that, you know, on a case by case, moment by moment, year by year basis. I mean, I feel like that's where defusion comes in because sometimes, you know, we're so stuck in our own thinking about what needs to happen that, you know, all you can do is <laughs> make up a song about it and laugh at yourself because that's yeah. sort of where we're all at. Yeah, so diffusion, isn't it? Is that thing that you were talking about earlier about unhooking from your own thoughts kind of that emotional helper. Okay, we're going to be back after this short advert. Are you looking for ways to manage your stress like a pro? Open Forward Self-Help School is an advanced training program, an online community designed to help you relax, have more fun and build your confidence. Inside, you'll get access to courses, coaching and members-only forums. We'll help you address your concerns head-on and change your mindset so you can move forwards and take on new challenges. You don't need to keep struggling. It's just a matter of learning what you can do to change it. Join us and get 30 days risk-free. If you're not ecstatic about the value you get from your small investment, then we'll happily refund your initial payment and we'll never charge you again. Go to www.openforwards.com forward slash self-help school. You're saying that works well for for yourselves. Is, is that something that you kind of teach about in the Empower Your Students book as well? I haven't. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to ask if if we do it with our with our kids. I haven't done it with my children, but I have done it with my students. I teach at a at a school where just a- academic achievement is really really important to families and to their kids, and so. I happen to teach the the grade level where they first start to get letter grades. And so they all want to get A's. Of course they do. And so we developed this exercise with singing. We call it singing your shoulds. So the grades that you should get. Yeah. And uh, when they get their grades on assignments, we sing a song about them. So it's to row, row, row your boat. A, 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 A plus, B, B minus, B. C, C minus, C, C minus, D, 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 D. And, <laughs> and you can sing that song in a round. Like, they get really silly. And that's kind of the point, is that they're just letters. We get to decide what they mean. And, it, again, it doesn't make the kids want to get A's any less. They still want to get A's, but they can also kind of notice their relationship to their own thinking about, about their grades and then decide what they want to do with that. Mm. It reminds me of a, a documentary that was on in the UK I, some years ago. I can't remember exactly where they. Ex- there was an experiment in a school to not give grades, but to just give comments on, on feedback on on whatever they they did. And but there, you could tell like the student was just sitting there going, "Tell me the grade. Tell me the grade. What did I get?" Yeah. 
Like it, and it just yeah, I mean, in my experience, it doesn't work because because of um, what's it called the the thing in RFT where you equivalence relations derived relations like it doesn't matter if we call it a b c d f or if we say excellent super wonderful you know fair good job or if we have emojis kids are going to notice what means they're the best and what means they're the second best yeah we're going to commodify outcomes whatever we call those outcomes one way or the other it's kind of unavoidable so even if they only get comments, they still want to know, like, am I the best? Am I the second best? Am I the worst? You know, tell me what my rank is relative to my peers. Tell me if I'm good enough and smart enough. And so our approach is instead of getting rid of grades, um, because it's sort of hard to not grade ourselves, even if we're not getting the letters, how do we want to relate to those, to those categories, to those self-evaluations? Right. Do we see ourselves only as good enough in relationship to this grade that has some sort of social meaning and significance? Or can we learn to, you know, view our own efforts and know honestly whether or not we gave, we tried our hardest or whether we're just sort of, you know, skating by without much effort, even if we are getting the best grades? Right. So you, it sounds like you're recognizing the natural urge to always be like, to, uh, to, compare yourself to to want to be the best to want to be the strongest the fastest the biggest or whatever and then working around that mm-hmm. mm. working with it even you know how how am i gonna how who do i want to be in the face of all these messages about who i should be right yeah so coming right back to that values piece again yeah, easy to get lost in all the, the thinking here. So I guess the kind of values piece is, is where you bring, bring the children, keep bringing them back to, to the meaningful part. Yeah, it really is the, I mean, there are lots of ways one can approach psychotherapy through, from an ACT perspective, uh, whether it's a you know, diffusion or selfless context or values. But I think in this book and in power, we, we really sort of begin and end with, we begin and end with values. And we, we get to the other aspects of the model and even a few things that are a little bit, um, you know, within CBS, but outside of ACT and bring that, those, those pieces in. Uh, but it's, it's, t- we, t- we do really do come back to values. Mm. And so I wonder, Jonathan, can you tell me a bit about kind of anything that you do, what you're kind of, working on uh, the projects that are maybe exciting you the most at the moment? Um, in, in my work as a psychologist at the VA, or do you just sort of mean in general with this work? Uh, either really, just something you'd like to speak to at the moment. Well, um, you know, one of the things I've gotten involved with is some training at the VA. And so that's causing me to listen to a lot of therapy sessions. And that's giving me more of a developmental perspective for therapists. Um, you know, so that's been a kind of a neat, um, you know, a, a neat development for me. Uh, one thing that does well, always comes up with working with high risk patients is that is how to how to address suicide prevention um, and how to um, take care of the steps that are considered to be sort of uh, standard of care you know from a just a general 
mental health perspective. So one thing, for example, that we will often ask our clinicians to do with high-risk patients is to put together what we call a safety plan. Mm-hmm. And the safety plan has you know, six different parts to it. The first part is an awareness part. The second part is what can you do for yourself, a sort of individual coping part. The third part is what do you like to do with other people at social. Fourth part is who can you call an emergency. Fifth part is um, who are the professionals in your life you can reach out to. And the sixth part is how to restrict any means that you might use to attempt suicide. The first two parts have, have uh, opportunities for empowerment in my view. Um, or in particular, because there's an awareness piece about when, what, what is going on inside your skin leading up to that moment that was so intolerable that you decided to end your life or tried to do something or had the thought about ending your life. And so sort of cultivating a willingness to have that conversation and a willingness to observe sensations. Now, the, the, now this is awfully deeply uncomfortable. And so um, when I have this conversation, I say the purpose of uh, which try to have a conversation about the purpose of awareness is so that you can choose. And what do you have when you have choices? You're empowered. <laughs> right. So that brings the power back to them. So the willingness to feel discomfort is in the service of their empowerment. And so we try to transform this low point into an opportunity for empowerment. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the context of the VA, which is uh, Veterans Affairs, is, is that what it stands for? Yeah, that's right. This is working with veterans. Um, but I would say that it's probably relevant for any patient who is really stuck in having some kind of high-risk situation where there's a lot of avoidance of affect, of sensations that has led them to a point where they're you know, in a hospital, in an inpatient unit, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so um, you two wrote this book together. What, what was it? Was this your first book that you produced together? Together, yeah. Yeah, what was, what was that sort of project like, <laughs> that experience? Um, I found it really fun and also sometimes really frustrating. I mean, I guess like any couple, we fight and this gave us something else to fight about, but also <laughs> something that we really felt like we were meaningfully doing together. He's the expert on the psychological theory and practice. And I sort of say like, well, wait a second, the thing that you do with your patients would totally never work in a classroom, but here's what would. And so it was kind of this constant back and forth about how to apply and adapt the tools and concepts of CBS to, to the classroom. It's really a joint effort. From a process standpoint, we have like two or three different types of conversations. (laughs) Laura, you know, it'll start with like, you know, somewhere around six in the morning as I'm waking up. Lauren's already been up for an hour writing. (laughs) And she'll say, hey, what do you think about this? And and so one type of the conversation is, uh, oh, I don't think that'll work. That's really stupid. And I'll try to go back to sleep. Or I'll say something really (laughs) arrogant. And then she'll get pissed at me. And then we'll have like a debate about it. And then eventually we'll sort of, we'll, we'll have this sort of dialectic where where maybe it wasn't the original idea that she suggested, nor was it the thing that I shot down, but we usually meet somewhere in the middle. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one way we come up with stuff. Uh, sometimes she's just totally brilliant and I just think, yeah, that'll be awesome. And, and I can see all these other applications. Um, so 
that's 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 the second type of conversation. And the third one is usually I'll I'll like come up with an idea and it'll totally not work whatsoever, and I won't understand until I actually like hear other teachers and see other teachers like we do in a training or a workshop or something, and I'll say, "Wow, I I, I really am appreciating this context and seeing how." how you're presenting things in a way that might be a little bit more didactic than we'd be comfortable doing in therapy training. Yeah, that that's one of the pieces that I think is a little bit different in the school context is that as a teacher, my job is to make sure that students learn. And sometimes the best way for them to learn is for me to tell them things. And it doesn't necessarily work experientially because they don't have the life experience to necessarily always be able to connect what I'm talking about to their experiences. Yeah. Yeah. But our hope is for them to get there eventually. And we do actually have our final chapter is really about psychological flexibility in your own life and in for, your, teachers. for teachers. And so we even toyed with the idea of suggesting that teachers could read the book backwards and start there. Um, but so they we, start with themselves. Right. But we, we felt like we couldn't start there because that would just be like a self-help book for teachers. And that probably wouldn't be very appealing. Well, I mean, not that it wouldn't be appealing. I mean, I think yeah. teachers actually um, might be interested in self-help, but we thought that a good place to start with teachers would be with their students. Teachers are constantly looking for ways to you know, make learning better for their students. And so we thought by beginning with students and then ending up with themselves, um, mm. that, that they might be a little more open to it. I guess, I guess the issue is I didn't want to present this work um, at all giving the message to teachers that they're somehow broken. That if they want to work on their own psychological flexibility, they can kind of come to that and... Um, and not feel like we're judging them in any way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really interesting to hear kind of the different parts of your process there. How long has <laughs> the, the book been out on the market in the US? It's not yet. It actually, it comes out uh, next month. August 8th. Ah, okay. And so uh, have you had any chance to get any feedback from anybody yet? Somebody might have used it? Um. Well, for one thing, at my school, some of my colleagues are using it. We've been giving trainings in different parts of the U.S. And teachers say that they really, um, they, they find the approach kind of refreshing, this idea of, of giving the power back to the students. Because a, a lot of programs are about managing student behavior or about inculcating certain values into them, whereas this is really building from where the students are, who they are. Yeah, very different spirit. And I'm not sure when it's coming out in the UK, but um, I imagine there's a similar hunger within teachers always looking for new ways of uh, kind of, of, of helping their students as well. Um, do you know when it's coming out in the UK? That we don't know. Yeah. I, I, I sent a book to a colleague as a pre-order who, who uh, gave us a lot of great feedback. So I was, I was curious about that. I, I hope the book ships over there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it can, it can be ordered online, but yeah. as far as coming out, I, that I don't know. Well, I'll look it up and I'll put some links to it on in the show notes at the, at the bottom of the page. Oh, thanks. That'd be lovely. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so if people wanted to get in contact with you to um, 
kind of ask questions or, or just kind of run some things by you? I guess, one, would you be okay with that? And, and two, what's the best way to do that? Um, absolutely, we'd be okay with it. Um, two ways to find us. One is our website. And the best way, the easiest way to get to our website is bit, B-I-T dot Lee, L-Y. So bit dot Lee slash empower your students. Okay. And then my email, which, you know, anyone's always welcome to ask me any questions, is just parasoff, my last name, at gmail. And mine is, uh, my work email is jonathan.weinstein at va.gov. Okay, great. Well, I've really enjoyed this today. This has been a different angle that we're kind of coming at self-help today within an educational context for the first time. So I really appreciate you giving up your time and um, I, I really hope this is it's going to be an interesting episode to people. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for your interest in our work. Wow, what an interview. Weren't these two great? You can find lots of information in the show notes about how to get in touch with them. There's that website address, there's their email addresses. And I put down details of where you can find their book when it comes out to publish in the UK. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and see you again next month. Bye.